good day. I'm your host, Scott Jordan, and it's time to set the water to boil. This is Tea Talk Asia. This week at the Asian World Center, we are honored to have with us a Nebraska native and a Vietnam War correspondent, Dr. Beverly Deep Kiever, author of Death Zones and Darling Spies, Seven Years of Vietnam War Reporting. But first, while we let our tea steep, we'll begin this show as we begin all shows by turning our eye to the east with a look at Asia and the headlines for the week of April 21st, 2014. We begin this week in Seoul, South Korea, where U.S. President Barack Obama stopped on Thursday on his way home from his visit to Japan. While in Seoul, President Obama reaffirmed his commitment to South Korea and against the threats and nuclear testing that are occurring in North Korea. President Obama stated that the North Korean problem is the most potentially destabilizing issue in Asia now, and he would be committed to resolving this situation. Also while in South Korea, Obama expressed his sincere sorrows for the victims of the Sewol passenger ferry accident that had become a national tragedy. Over 183 people have been reported as fatalities, and 121 remain missing. Many of the passengers were high school-aged students. Obama, himself a father, said he could not imagine what the families are going through at this time. He presented a magnolia tree to South Korea as a gift from the White House to commemorate the young victims of the ferry accident. The ferry accident was reported to have been caused by a weight imbalance issue and reported inexperienced driving of the vessel. Prosecutors are continuing their investigation as relatives of those lost are displaying their anger publicly. Expert divers continue to check the wreckage, but bad weather and strong currents have hindered the search and rescue parties. On our last episode, we discussed the disappearance of Malaysian flight MH370 in the Indian Ocean. Search efforts have continued and expanded to include submersibles that are searching below the ocean's surface in the area that has been suspected of having evidence of the missing craft. The submersibles have checked about 95% of the area that was suspected following the possible hearing of signals from the plane's flight recorder on April 8th. 239 people were on board MH370 as it was lost during its travel between Kuala Lumpur and Beijing. No conclusive evidence has been found at this time. As deadly floods wash over Afghanistan, 80% of the polls are in from last week's general election. Candidate Abdullah Abdullah, a physician and former member of the anti-Taliban Northern Alliance, is currently the frontrunner. The next Afghan president will be faced with difficult decisions as foreign troop withdrawal is soon expected, along with increased activity of the Taliban as well. Since November, we have been covering the tumultuous government protests that have occurred in Thailand's capital, Bangkok. Up until the beginning of April, the protests had largely been anti-government and against the current prime minister, Yingluck Sinawat. During the first weekend of April, a familiar group known as the Red Shirt Movement joined the protests in favor of the Sinawat administration. The Red Shirt Movement arose in support of Yingluck's brother, Thaksin Sinawat, and their protests in 2010 had led to a very violent and bloody clash. While the Red Shirt rallies may appear to outsiders as fun dance festivals, the leaders of the movement have stressed that they will oppose any undemocratic restructuring of the current government by the Thai elite, even if that means resorting to violence. The Thai courts had ruled February's general election invalid, and we wait to hear of the recent charges pressed on Yingluck that could remove her from office at the end of the month. Removal of Shinawat from office could cause a major conflict between pro-democracy Shinawat supporters and the anti-government royalist camp. 
We will continue to cover the situation as more developments come about. That was a look at Asia and the headlines for this week. And before we begin our discussion with Dr. Kiever, a few words from the Asian World Center. Creighton University is now enrolling students in our new master's degree program in East-West Studies, designed to provide students a unique, immersive, and international experience in the U.S. and Asia. This program bridges Eastern and Western concepts, including the arts, business, conflict resolution, and technology, to enable you to take a leadership role in today's global community. To apply online, visit ews.creighton.edu. Creighton University, for the greater. This week, we have the privilege to sit at the Asian World Center with Professor Emerita at the University of Hawaii, Dr. Beverly Deep Kiever. Dr. Kiever was a professor of journalism at the University of Hawaii until her retirement in 2008. She is a co-editor of the well-reviewed U.S. News Coverage of Racial Minorities, a source book, 1934 to 1996. She has received the University of Hawaii's Regent Medal for Excellence in Teaching, numerous Freedom of Information Awards, and awards from the Alumni Association of two of her alma maters, the University of Nebraska College of Journalism and Mass Communications, and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. She has written numerous other articles for academic, professional, and commercial publications while at the University of Hawaii and as a correspondent in Vietnam for Newsweek, the New York Herald Tribune, Christian Science Monitor, and the London Daily and Sunday Express. On March 4, 2014, Dr. Kiefer came to Creighton University to give a lecture on her book, Death Zones and Darling Spies. Without further delay, we welcome Dr. Beverly Deep Kiefer. Dr. Kiever, thank you again for joining us in this very, very cold Omaha, all the way out from a much nicer Hawaii, I assume. <laughs> it's so. my pleasure, believe me. Yeah. Um, so to kind of get started, uh, talking about your book especially, because that's what you'll be talking about tomorrow, how does a journalist from the Midwest, Nebraska, end up in Vietnam? Well, it's sort of a series of very small steps that ended up kind of by accident mm-hmm. that I ended up in Vietnam just as the American buildup of advisors and helicopter units were moving in. Now, I had a master's degree in journalism, and I knew I wanted to be a journalist in different parts of the world, but I never dreamt of Vietnam. I mean, people had hardly heard of Vietnam. It was just part of French Indochina. So as I was in Hong Kong, I had a letter of introduction to the Hong Kong bureau chief, And he had just come back from Saigon. And he said, you'd better go down to Vietnam. Things are really heating up there. So I had planned to stay two weeks in Saigon. And um, I was sort of on a trip around the world just for my own education to Mm -hmm. see how other people live. I ended up staying seven years because the American buildup kept escalating. And I was able to travel around the countryside just as the Americans were moving uh, young officers into each of the provinces, the four provinces, and with the Vietnamese military units. So everything I looked at was kind of newsy. And I was freelancing, no regular paycheck, but I had a connection with Associated Press news features, and they were picking up my material. So I just kind of stuck it out, and the longer I stayed, the better the story got. It grew and grew and grew. And uh, so I stayed for seven years. It was the most intense part 
of the war within Vietnam, and it was the most complicated part because it was, first of all, an insurgency against the ruling government, mm -hmm. and then it became a war of infiltration from the North Vietnamese coming in from the jungle areas, and then it was an eruption within the cities of a political upheaval that ultimately led to the Americans deposing the, uh, the, the government that they had backed since the Eisenhower administration. Mm -hmm. So the story just grew, and I finally got a paycheck uh, and so on. Yeah. Well, interesting. So as you're, as you're coming back, you know, um, looking back to write the book, uh, you have a very interesting title. And so, Death Zones and Darling Spies, oh, yeah. what, what, how does that title kind of come to you, and what does that tell us about your story and your book? Well, uh, I think I was maybe the first journalist to use the phrase death zones. It came about because the Saigon government was starting uh, what they called a strategic hamlet program, building new villages for people that they wanted to pull away from the communist areas and away from the jungle to give them a safe uh, place to come in to the government area. And then they had um, loudspeaker broadcasts and leaflets to say, got to come into the government side, and if you don't, we're going to have a, what the province chief told me, death zones. Uh, Aerial bombing, random, you know, no specific targets. So anyone outside this area of the government uh, village was just going to be in what he called a death zone. I frankly didn't really remember writing that very much, but it was published in the Manila Times, and I had a clipping of that. You know, the Philippines had had their own insurgency, so they used death zones in the headline. And... Uh, when I was fishing around for a title, that popped into my head because the untold part of that story uh, in all of the media really was the poor uh, plight of the civilians, especially the women, the children, and the elderly. All of the young men were sconced off on one side or the other. So I chose that title uh, for the death zones the Darling Spies, that just came to me as I was writing the book. I had uh, this associate that started working for me with when I was with the New York Herald Tribune, Pham Swan An, who um, was very knowledgeable about uh, the communists and about guerrilla warfare. He had typed out for somebody else but gave me the carbon of some of Mao Zedong's choice quotes on guerrilla warfare. And he thought I should have it. 37 pages of this single space oh, wow. typing. He was not a very good typist with X's and so on. <laughs> I frankly don't remember using it ever in my stories or even studying it in Vietnam. But when I was writing the book, I, I really looked it over. And here, I, there were five categories of spies that Mao Zedong defines, and one of them was what An had typed out as darling spies. And these were uh, actually spies that, at great sacrifice and danger to themselves, were working both sides. Well, I 
I used that in the title, and I took it to one of my profs at UH, and he and I both went to Google. I looked through all of Mao Zedong's writings that were on the web, and nothing Darling Spice didn't come up. So he, he kind of questioned whether what that was, and I looked further into an academic journal article that looked at uh, Mao and his writings and all that. And I found Mao's original quote, which was daring spies. <laughs> so Mao had said the daring spies were the fifth category. And so I, I used darling spies because, as it turned out, An was, while he was working for me, an ace spy for Hanoi. Oh, okay. And so he was being paid by the New York Herald Tribune uh, while I was with them, and um, he was really a neat guy and very knowledgeable, great sources on both sides. And I also, out of my own pocket, was paying his friend, uh, Wen Hu Bung. Turned out I didn't know it till much later when I was researching the book. I got the papers of somebody who had interviewed Vung in Washington when he was there. Vung was a, a spy for the CIA since World War II days. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, I had spies on both sides, and uh, all around me, I was completely oblivious to it, but I frankly don't think it affected my copy. I mean, they kind mm -hmm. of balanced each other out, and um, they certainly enlarged my view right. of what was going on. One of the things that really interested me in that war how did this little ragtag army of guerrillas take on this superpower? And they were getting popular support. What was their message? And it turns out that they had, of course, a very sophisticated message that appealed land reform, land to the landless, and um, all of their propaganda identified the Americans with the old French colonialists. So this is just a disguised uh, colonial regime. And of course, they were a very nationalistic people to start with. Mm -hmm. So the, the communists were very effective in terms of uh, w what they called later winning the hearts and minds of the people, which right. the Americans broadcast but were never able to connect. Right. Mm -hmm. So that became the Darling Spies. I had a hard time finding the title. At one point, I, I had flashbacks of Vietnam or something like mm -hmm. that. And as I did my research, Morley Safer had a book. Oh. <laughs> but I didn't yeah. like it anyhow. You know, it wasn't meaty enough. Right. Anyhow, this just sometimes when you don't think of something directly, it just pops into your head. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happened. Oh, well, that's fascinating. And so when you you get back from Vietnam after having all these experiences, and you had mentioned that a lot of your concern was for the women and the children since the men kind of were occupied with what was happening. Um, how did that uh, change kind of your outlook on things, especially towards human rights and um, war and some of these geopolitical things that happened would, would you know, happen thereafter Vietnam leading up even to today? Well, uh, first of all, I, I felt that as the war turned out in Vietnam with the American withdrawal in 1973 and then the Hanoi taking over in 75. This was 
the beginning of the decline of American power and prestige, certainly in Asia and the Pacific. And you would have thought that they would learn a lot of lessons from it. Well, in fact, on the web, there are a lot of separate military uh, analysis of what went wrong in certain little instances. And even General Petraeus did a dissertation. But they didn't get into the real depth of it. It was more on the military side. They didn't look at the politics. They didn't look at the people. Well, I think, uh, you know, after Vietnam, uh, they didn't admit the defeat and the decline. And, of course, there was a lot of rah, rah, rah with Reagan mm -hmm. and so on. So everything was on the back burner until they invaded Iraq. And, whoa, instead of just the liberation, pretty soon you had another insurgency. Complete misjudgment. Complete ignoring anything that they might have learned from Vietnam. And then it got worse when they mishandled Afghanistan. So I just saw very clear patterns at the foreign policy level of how we were not only having the wrong policy, but a policy that actually you were creating enemies with instead of defeating. They were not having the right on-the-ground connections. And the thing that most Americans probably don't realize is the tremendous firepower that America commands, and they started using it more and more to save casualties. Mm -hmm. So the violence and the destruction, I was just horrified, for example, that we al allowed so much of the museum and the art in uh, Baghdad to be vandalized and looted. Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, I was teaching global communications. We all know that's the cradle of yeah. uh, alphabetic communication. Mm -hmm. So that was horrifying in itself. And then um, I, I think it was also that we began to realize that we are wasting our own treasury, not only American blood, but our money, and our whole economic status is becoming more and more bankrupt. I think Iraq cost more than all of our previous wars together. So instead of schools and highways, the infrastructure in America is, um, is really in disarray, mm -hmm. great need of repair. I must say the death zones, I equate a little bit with my picture of what's happening with the drone wars. It is a more sophisticated technologically idea of death zones, but you're just raining in death and destruction from the heavens with very little cost to the American side and with imprecision on your, who you're killing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it gives you a completely different perspective, one that I don't read very much about in the mainstream media. And so how... I guess where do we go from here then? Because I mean, you're you're explaining how you know you had this experience in in Vietnam, and you're you're kind of looking back on it as you're writing this book, and you're seeing the same things essentially play themselves out again. A classic example of history repeating itself. Is there is there something that we perhaps as the people can do? Is there something that you know the government needs to do, or instead of a this is a society where we need to you know sit back. 
check or something. So. All right. Well, that's a very good question. Defense Department, we need actually a, a Department of Peace. Now, there is a Peace Institute, but it's just peanuts. If we would invest as much money in trying to alleviate some of the causes of violence, basically a lot of it has to do with territoriality like we're seeing in the Ukraine now, but um, we have no vested interest as a country in Ukraine per se. That is something that those poor people have to work out for themselves, and we might be able to give humanitarian assistance in a very precise way, but we need a lot more investment on getting the message out that is calming and is constructive, and money, I think, instead of we have tremendous defense uh, obligations with other countries, putting that money into uh, works that alleviate poverty and disease throughout the world that fester insurrections. And um, I think the whole Defense Department needs to be redirected. You cannot get rid of the military-industrial complex because it's really the heart of a lot of American knowledge and expertise, but you can use it for different things. As we saw right after World War II, we went from a wartime economy into all of this great manufacturing of refrigerators and new housing and and Eisenhower had the interstate highway and so on. So we can invest at home in ways that build up the country and um, also allows us to have a surplus maybe over time to help other countries in a constructive way and in a long-term way. Oddly enough, we we had invested in a major irrigation project in Afghanistan in 1960 that really helped a lot of people in this valley, but we let it dissipate. Mm -hmm. We didn't keep it up. Now is an opium uh, growing field. So, you know, we don't have the long-term commitment. Mm -hmm. We reorganized the government after uh, 9-11, the Homeland Security, but it's become such a big bureaucracy I think they need to reorganize the government again for peace in at home, with investments at home, and overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, we are spending more on interest on the national debt than we are on the Pentagon budget. So we're just you know, filtering away some of the limited resources that we have financially. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Kiever, for joining us. My pleasure to be here. And thank you for the center for having us and the great work that they're doing to kind of try to alleviate some of the violence in the world. Dr. Kiever's book, Death Zones and Darling Spies, Seven Years of Vietnam War Reporting, comes to us on a milestone anniversary of a different war, that being World War I but reminds us of a piece of our history that we don't like to review, but Kiever demands that we must. For while the war anniversary may not line up, the importance of Dr. Kiever's story does not wane in the slightest when we look at U.S. operations in Afghanistan and Iraq and find ourselves asking the same questions that we did during the Vietnam War to our government, our media, and ourselves. 
With the headlines ripe with the happenings of Edward Snowden and Julian Assange, we are struggling to define the boundaries of what our government must tell us and must keep confidential, as well as how far the media can be allowed to challenge such boundaries when infringed upon. Dr. Kiever's book is not your typical journalist reminiscence of an event in time filled with far too many words and a lazy attempt to remain neutral. Rather, Kiever gives us a real story, a piece of her life. She is frank and straightforward with her writing and retains an eloquence that elicits authenticity. While the tagline for this book can be how a little Nebraska girl found herself in one of the most atrocious conflicts in U.S. military history, Kiever remains sharp, observant, and trusting, which gives us a direct line to the pulse of the average American during such conflicts. She captures a naivete that digs up the consciousness of the time, while also filling us in on the hindsight of the complexity of espionage and eminence of death all around her. Dr. Kiever's Death Zones and Darling Spies is available from the University of Nebraska Press and, in the opinion of this host, most worthy of your reading. To hear Dr. Kiever's lecture at Creighton University, please visit creighton.edu awc. That is all we have for this week. As always, we like to hear what you have to say, so please send your opinions to awc at creighton.edu. We look forward to hearing from you. For more information on the Asian World Center or for more episodes of Tea Talk Asia, please visit www.creighton.edu slash Asia. From all of us here at the Asian World Center, we wish you a most happy today and an even better tomorrow. This has been Tea Talk Asia, looking east from west. I'm Scott Jordan. Thank you very much for listening. Tea Talk Asia is a production of the Asian World Center at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm your host, Scott Jordan, with executive producer Maorong Zhang, managing producer Andrew Trapp, and Voices on Asia producer and host Cindy Workman. For more information, please visit creighton.edu slash awc.